I love that moment of sitting across the table from people, interviewing them in that moment where your, your face starts to like swell up with tears because you're so moved by what they're saying. I actually don't really consider myself a good photographer and that may kind of sound like self-deprecating, but it's because I actually, I love storytelling and journalism so much that I could go days, I could go weeks without picking up my camera to take a single photo, but I don't think I could go days and weeks without connecting with another human being. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Howard. I'm the founder and CEO of Musea. And welcome to the Musea podcast, which exists to help photographers have sustainable careers through meaningful photography. My name is uh, Brittany Greeson. I'm a documentary stills photographer. I do mostly focus on real life, daily life, um, a lot of more um, intimate and nuanced things is what I, I gravitate towards, I would say. So I was kind of into like metal <laughs> Okay. <laughs> when I was into, when I was like 15 years old, I was into like the whole hardcore scene and like all of that. And not many people know this, like the story that I usually tell is, is kind of more appropriate and it's more like oh yeah like because I was on my high school yearbook and newspaper doing journalistic photography but what really actually sparked my interest in photography was going to hardcore shows and wanting to take photos of my friends and I found it just like really fun and like a, a cool way of being artistic that I hadn't developed yet like I wasn't ever a good like artist like all my friends were uh, you know I was the president ironically the president of the fine arts society which was our high school art club but I could not draw worth a crap <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't do really anything and so it kind of came to a point where I was just like you know I hadn't found a creative outlet that I felt like I was I was comfortable with or good at and photography kind of became that voice you know when I was really really young I you know I got my first DSLR I started going to hardcore shows and like taking photos and having fun with it and then it you know took a more serious tone when I was recruited to join my high school yearbook and newspaper and then you know that journalism teacher you know was a huge mentor for me and she actually had gone to Western Kentucky University which had like obviously this like legacy of being a really great journalism school and I guess that's where I started like taking photos of people candidly on purpose uh, to make purposeful images. But, you know, it was still like those early stages and I wasn't sure that I loved it very much. So I actually entered college as a graphic design major for the first semester. Then I had this college level journalism class. And I just remember us going through like Robert Kappa and like understanding like how images can be impactful. And then I, I just remember you know, Napalm Girl and all these really historic images. And, the, and I think that I was moved by why they're historic and how important it was for photographers to be there to document history. I, at one point, before I was going to be a graphic design major, I wanted to be a history professor. And so I've always been interested in history and the historical perspectives of things. And so that's when it really hit me, the type of work that I'm doing today. Like that's when it really kind of came full circle that this like hobby that I had started for visual expression actually became a greater love of journalism. Um, and, you know, I guess I kind of adopted that young freshman, like I want to change the world attitude. <laughs> and I'm a little bit jaded now, but I still have that to some extent. I'm only slightly jaded now. I realize that what I do isn't going to change everything, but mm -hmm. I do hope that it can at least 
you know, I think, I think that journey of photography has brought me to a really interesting point at least. So that, that starting, that starting mentality is still kind of similar to now. Mm -hmm. I was looking on your site and you're, how old are you? If you don't mind me asking. I'm 24. <laughs> okay. That's what I thought. I was doing yeah. the math. I was like, depends yeah. on what her birthday is. She could be 25, 24. Yeah. Okay. That's one of the things I think that blew me away about your work is that your work is very mature and very seasoned. It's because I'm internally an old lady. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am the person on a Friday night sitting home watching Netflix, like drinking like hot tea and hanging out. With I love taking my dog to the dog park. Like that's like a nice evening for me. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, thank you. That, that means a lot. Um, I think that my personality has always been more mature. So I guess that shows through my work. Um, I, because of like some of the things I went through growing up, I had to kind of grow up pretty quickly. Um, and I think that shows through in my work because oftentimes I find that the subjects I'm documenting, a lot of their difficult situations, we have a lot in common. So it's easy. It's almost easy for me to handle those situations and, and be intimate with these types of people and, and talk to them. So I, I guess that's why that uh, shows through because that happens a lot where people think I'm like 30 something. <laughs> I feel like I'm 30 something sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> Photojournalism for you, what is it about it that kind of keeps you going? You said you're getting jaded. I think anytime you get into any industry, you get into the inside of it, it's like it loses some of its luster, I, I would imagine. But what about photojournalism keeps driving you forward, especially in this kind of internet savvy age we live in? Yeah, you know, I um, I had an actually really interesting conversation with my uh, partner yesterday. We were sitting in his office talking about, like, kind of the, what the next moves are for me in this industry because I'm still kind of trying to find a place for myself because what I'm doing now, you know, it's wonderful, but I'm still trying to figure out, like, something that I can use my creativity and my voice along with the voices of the people I'm documenting. And so I think... For me, what photojournalism actually is about is actually a collaboration. And, and I know it's like unpopular to admit that you like get attached to your subjects. And I think it's unpopular to admit that we all have a little bias. And I think that my background is a huge reason why I tell these stories. And so for me to not kind of be honest with the people I'm documenting that I do care about them and that I, I do have a reason why I'm taking their photos. Um, it's almost like washing the richness uh, to any body of work that you create. And so for me, photojournalism is that collaboration, that work, like sitting across the table. I love that moment of sitting across the table from people, um, interviewing them in that moment where your, your face starts to like swell up with tears because you're so moved by what they're saying. Um, I actually don't really consider myself a good photographer and that may kind of sound like self-deprecating but it's because I actually I love storytelling and journalism so much that I could go days I could go weeks without picking up my camera to take a single photo but I don't think I could go days and weeks without connecting with another human being or listening to someone's story um that's what I, I think it's at the end of the day like all about uh photography is just really the medium for it mm -hmm. you know right now i'm like considering moving towards more of a video direction um because i love the way video can evoke an emotion that sometimes stills is missing so i you know whatever medium will always be fine i just love that collaboration with the people that you're meeting because you know i don't really like the phrase like that we're giving them voices because i think that their voices are there we're just like working with them to make sure that they are seen and actually heard, like actually amplified. Um, and we saw that a lot in Flint 
that kind of set the tone for me that it is a collaboration because I was collaborating with all these people early on who really weren't being listened to by anyone, including the national media. So if that answers your question, that's kind of what it's about. Yeah, that's great. I mean, do you see yourself ultimately, I guess, as just a storyteller? Or um, I mean, if you do video, are you going to do, I'm assuming, documentary videos? You know, it's kind of funny, like, I have this, like, weird dream of one day producing rap music videos, <laughs> but I, uh, it's, it's actually kind of funny, because I really do uh, get a lot of inspiration from rap artists like Kendrick Lamar and Chance the Rapper, and, you know, like, kind of some of the older rap artists, because, like, they're so intrinsically creative, and they put their heart out on paper, and they tell stories through their, through their music, so... Yeah, I think I'm just going to be a storyteller. Um, you know, I prefer documentary because I have always been kind of boring in the sense of drawn to real life. Like, I don't really read nonfiction. Mm -hmm. I am not into, I've never liked superhero movies. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of like an old lady uh, in that regard. Like, I just wasn't ever drawn to that world. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I will always kind of stick to some type of either documentary or like, if I were to produce or make music videos one day, like a documentary interpretation of someone's story, um, I think is what I really want to stick with. Yeah, that's cool. Tell me about Flint and how you got started covering it. Okay, so I had gotten an internship at the Flint Journal and, you know, I had been there for about, God, I think I'd been there like two to three months. And I remember Jake May, who you should also go check out his work because he's an incredible photojournalist and just a really wonderful person. He's easily become one of my greatest friends. So he was my boss at the time and he had brought me there and he had given me a few assignments covering uh, city council meetings in the city of Flint. And I just remember listening to talks about the water. I remember kind of like more in-depth discussions. Like at the time they had brought in this, uh, second party called Veolia, who they, the city paid like thousands of dollars to come in and like fix the problem because the pipes were leaching a carcinogenic compound called TTHMs. And this was in early, I think this was early April or even maybe like March that this kind of meeting took place. And I just remember feeling like frustrated sitting in the meeting and being like, what do you mean? Like the water supply is that bad? Like you just got a sense that it was that bad, even though this, these like public officials weren't admitting it. And so I began to get really curious and I started, you know, finding out about these and, and seeing these protests outside of the city hall, which was literally like two blocks from my apartment I was living at, at the time. Um, I think I was just really moved by kind of the, you know, like we always hear about like the little guy versus the big guys, and in this case, the little guy was these Flint residents who no one was taken seriously because they didn't have credentials. Um, there was a really interesting article yesterday that came out talking about like the lack of media coverage up front. And that's kind of what was going on here. And I just felt like no one was really hearing them out when they were complaining about the water and the way that it smelled. And at this point, we didn't know about the lead. Mm -hmm. So I started a photo essay about it. And the original photo essay was actually called We Fear the Water. And it was horribly shot. And, you know, I don't think that there's many things that I did then that I, I should have. Um, I just turned 22 and I didn't know the things then that I know now. But, you know, I still did it. You know, I um, went out and found river cleanups. I documented Leanne Walters at the very beginning when she was, you know, bathing her twin sons with baby wipes because she was scared to put them in the water. And it's interesting because like back then all these things just seemed really bizarre. 
And then when I returned in 2016, everyone was doing that. Hmm. And it was like a kind of a really scary feeling of realizing that only a few select people, often educated mothers or just people who had kind of gotten the word or had been involved in social activism, only a few select group really got the word at, at first because the city was telling everyone it was fine. And so for someone who maybe wasn't connected with that branch of social activism, who's living in a, a neighborhood across the way, like they didn't hear really the things that were going on between the activists. Um, so that was the beginning. I just kind of decided that I wanted to kind of hang around those people and actually like listen to them and take them seriously. Everyone thought they were like crazy at first. Everyone thought this group of people had just gone nuts and they were over exaggerating and they didn't know what they were talking about. But, you know, I look back now and it's kind of mind blowing. There was this gentleman who I interviewed and I can't say his name because I don't want to get him in trouble, but I interviewed him in April of 2015. And he was like, he worked for the city. He had looked at the pipes himself. He had been down there like repairing some of them. He was like, you know, I really feel like what the problem is going to be isn't actually the TTHMs. I feel like what the problem is probably going to be is the corrosion and all this lead. Oh my gosh. And I didn't listen to that. I didn't, I didn't realize it didn't click in my head. And I, you know, I still feel kind of not responsible, but I still feel a great level of guilt for what happened in Flint because I, I just wish that I had been able to get that story in a bigger like national stage earlier, mm-hmm. but uh, I listened to that recording a few months ago and it kind of blew my mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, it's, I would assume just as you're getting your career going, it's, you're, you're just going to learn things as you go and always look back. I mean, it's like anytime you create anything, you look back on any sort of early work and you're like, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. You're like, I could have, could have, should have, would have, um, yeah. you know, I uh, could have pitched harder. I could have, mm-hmm you know, made uh, certain news organizations that I, I did pitch the story to, like, listen harder. <laughs> like, I don't know, I, I could have maybe shot it better. You know, you th- those things go through your head. But at the end of the day, I do know that I'm one person. I do know that the Flint Journal, the actual newspaper I was working for, did a, a great job in terms of listening. And Jake was, you know, did a fantastic job and ended up being nominated for a Pulitzer for his work there. So wow. it did, like, get the attention it deserved. It's just, like, unfortunately, on a national scale not so much and there's a lot of issues surrounding that but we don't have to I don't have to go on a rant for it. <laughs> <laughs> all right we're going to take a quick break from the podcast and wanted to let you know that here at the museum lab we now offer luster printing we offer prints all the way from 4x6 up to 8x12 this is a fuji paper that produces amazing contrast deep blacks and consistent and accurate colors every single time. This is really great for wedding photographers if you do 4x6s or 5x7s, a large quantity of those in a box, along with like a USB or something similar. We can now serve you through that. We have affordable rates, bulk pricing, all the above. So if you want to, you can learn more at musealab.com. Also, I wanted to say a really quick thanks to all of our supporters on Patreon. If you want to become a supporter of the podcast and get the additional audio from every interview that we do, you can learn more at patreon.com slash musea. It helps us grow the podcast, helps us cover our editing costs, and helps us move to where we can release this podcast weekly instead of just bi-weekly. And you gain access to 
all of the uh, additional audio that we release for our Patreon-only listeners on there. So if you want to become a member and help us grow and move this podcast forward, you can do that there. And we really appreciate everyone that's jumped on board early. That's really helped a lot, and we're very thankful. All right, back to the show. So tell us about where it's at right now with Flint. Yeah, they had a protest yesterday and I didn't get to go, unfortunately, because I thought, yeah, it started raining in Detroit and I thought it was going to get rained out. So I didn't go, but I'm kind of upset that I didn't. The the state of Flint right now is basically the same that it has always been. And and that is what is just... Oh, I just like my hands are up in the air right now. I'm just like, <laughs> like, like virtually strangling someone because it's literally exactly the same. And honestly, as a journalist, that is what is so hard about documenting it. Now I don't know. I'm blown away that it, everything looks kind of the same. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, what do you do with that? And so imagine, so you take my frustration of being like, well, like, it's unfair to the people and it's also like repetitive to take 5 million photos of people like using bottled water. Imagine how frustrating it is living it. Mm-hmm. Like imagine how frustrating it is. It's like, it's frustrating me because I, I don't know where the story goes because it hasn't changed. Imagine living it for like over three years and your situation hasn't changed. Um, you're still using bottled water to like bathe your baby who probably, you know, was born during the water crisis. You know, there's a family I know, their child I don't think has ever been in tap water because she was carrying him during the water crisis. What's so frustrating about it is, like, it was once on all the television screens, it was once in every single newspaper, and other than, you know, a few articles every so often, and, you know, some publications I work for have have done a really great job of trying to keep, you know, new ways of telling the story and, and, like, that piece that I did for the Times recently where we went back and talked to residents about their other worries that have been kind of like sidelined. Those are wonderful and all, but the overall attention of the public, as we saw with other major events like the Haiti earthquake and Katrina, and, you know, I think those are all separate events. I'm not comparing them to each other, but after a while, like people just stop caring and it's something that Flint has reached unfortunately even though the situation remains exactly the same as it was in 2015 and now and you know they're starting reconstruction on the pipes but it's just like frustrating because there's always this narrative that Flint is this downtrodden place where like poverty is everywhere and yes like there is a lot of poverty yes there is gun violence but I love Flint. I loved living there. I never felt anything but like a homey feeling being there. Flint is one of the reasons why I moved back to Michigan. You know, my partner and I, we chose Detroit so that he could find work. Otherwise, we would have lived in Flint. And so it gets forgotten because you're just like, oh, it's just this old city that's deteriorating, much like Detroit. And it's so much more than that. It's so rich and the people are so rich and there's great food and there's music and there's community events. And uh, the one thing that's been so beautiful about the water crisis is that all these people from different backgrounds who didn't know each other came together and they're now like amazing like friends and community leaders. So yeah, that's kind of where it's at right now. It's It has its, its high moments where, you know, you're really looking at the resilience of this group of people. But at the end of the day, you like sit back and you're like, I don't even know how to absorb all this information in that they're still having to live like this after years of fighting 
you know, whatever authoritative powers were keeping them from having something so basic, Mm -hmm. which is like all these people are asking for is to be able to turn on their taps and feel safe about using the water. And they've been so traumatized from the lies and, you know, just the overall situation that I don't even know if, even if it is clean, if they'll ever feel clean using it. So to fill me in on like, I've never been to Flint. So give me just this picture or description of the size of Flint, you know, demographics, and then really where the crux of the issue is in terms of like, you know, it's the people versus the city assuming, or is there like corporation issues in there that tie into all this? So the thing that first kind of like hit me about Flint, I think is that coming from Kentucky, um, you know, you don't see like a lot of brick houses and brick buildings. Um, It was a car manufacturing town. It's a motor city. So, you know, you'll kind of get that industrial, but also like homey, like this is like a working class town sense when you, when you go there. The uh, population is majority uh, working class people and it's majority uh, African-American because of white flight that occurred after General Motors closed plants in that region. But there's also like some really beautiful things about it. There's this park that I'm kind of obsessed with. I've always wanted to make a photo there that it literally is a park that is kind of built like a forest. It's not like an open grass park where there's no trees. It's like all these trees that kind of curve over the way the pathway on this like several acre thing of land like right in the middle of the city and then there's like this yellow apartment building downtown that I used to live in on Saturdays there's the beautiful like flat farmers market where different vendors will come in and you know plenty of like really great produce and cheeses and meats and you'll also notice like coming in that those days are like kind of like the most active or like those are the little things that will stick with you It's a pretty, like, small downtown, but the Flint metro, like, the Flint area is actually a lot bigger than people thought it was. It's, like, roughly, well, it might be a lot fewer now, but when I was there, it was, like, metro was, like, 100,000. But in the actual city of Flint, I think it's going to be, like, closer to 70 or so, um, and those numbers are are probably going to dwindle since the water crisis. I think another thing, unfortunately, that people, like, notice about Flint is there are, there's a lot of blight, there's a lot of abandoned houses, but... I don't know. I don't really see it as like a big deal anymore. I I think it was a huge contrast for me coming from Kentucky where that like never happens, at least the area I was from, you know, you notice it, but once you kind of get used to it and realize that it's not really a big deal, it like happened decades ago. It's not a reflection of the city itself. You know, a lot of people, unfortunately, like they like see blight and they get scared. They think they're in a bad neighborhood. Well, you know, I live in Detroit and there's a lot of neighborhoods that have flight, that have amazing, incredible people. And so that's kind of how Flint is. It's like a miniature Detroit in that sense of like it gets a bad rap. It looks kind of rough on the outside due to just lack of like taxpayer dollars. But the people are like so incredibly warm. And, you know, like I always loved going to like the Coney Island, which is like another term for like diner up here. I really still haven't fully grasped exactly what a Coney Island is. <laughs> but yeah, so like, yeah, it's like this really classic Midwestern town that got a little bit beat up, but not to the fault of its residents, to the fault of the corporate powers and, you know, government oversight that it screwed it over. Mm-hmm. So for those that maybe haven't followed the Flint stories super duper close, in a nutshell, I don't know if you can kind of tell us what started the problems and then what has kept it going. 
so what happened was um, it all kind of goes back to the emergency manager law, which I'm still informing myself about because it's still a huge issue. <laughs> like this is so complex. So I'm going to give you like the synopsis, like, you know, cliff notes, so, yeah. yeah, cliff notes version of the entire Flint water crisis. No big deal. So the started with the emergency manager law, the emergency manager law allows um, the state government to, you know, at least my understanding, assign an emergency management team to a city when it's um, about to become bankrupt or is struggling financially. That happened in Flint before the water crisis. Um, emergency managers were assigned to Flint and therefore were making more financial decisions for Flint, even though they had not been voted in, which is why this law has been so controversial is you have representatives taking over you know, your city government, but you never voted for them. And you barely know who they are. So at the time, the mayor was Dwayne Walling, and then we had, that was the actual elected mayor, but then you had a team of emergency managers um, who were making the city's decisions. One of the decisions this team made, or at least the, the elected officials at the time in combination with the emergency manager made was that to save the city money, to save it, I think it was like, gosh, it was like in the millions, but it wasn't really a huge number. They decided they, sorry, I laugh at it because it's just like so ridiculous to say out loud now. They were citing like a potential savings of like $5 million. I I just made sure that I got that right. And they decided they were going to switch from using Detroit water, water that was, you know, treated in Detroit and then kind of like shipped up to Flint basically through the pipe system. Mm -hmm. They were like, why don't we save money and use our own water plant, which hadn't really been used for like daily water treatment in about 50 years. Uh, And then we'll use the Flint River, which, you know, if anyone looking at the Flint River knows is like, it's not the most ideal water source. I, you know, I don't, I I can't speak to the biology of it and whether or not, you know, how disgusting it is, but I I did photograph a dead body getting pulled out of there. So I don't want to drink that. Gosh. You know, I literally had photographed a dead body getting pulled out of there when it was our water source. And the next morning I took a shower and I opened my mouth and I like freaked out. Yeah. You know, you think about these things. Those happen in a lot of like large bodies of water, but for such a small body of water that, you know, hadn't really been used. And like, you know, it's in a manufacturing town, like what it used to be an auto manufacturing town. It just, it doesn't feel right. So they switched to using the Flint River as the water source. Well, with that, you know, the river water had, you know, a lot of issues and they had to treat it with more chlorine. They had to, you know, figure out the proper treatment for it. And I remember, you know, early on, I I started my internship there in January, 2015, my water was blue and it smelled like chlorine. And I got a rash in April because I'm the type of person that if I'm around too much chlorine, my skin breaks out. And I remember not really understanding that, but it all kind of makes sense now. So as they started treating it with more chlorine, the water became more corrosive. Well, there are all these pipes in Flint that are connecting to people's house, the water mains. You know, the United States has been doing this for years. We use lead. There is an actual reason why. I think because it's malleable or more malleable. But we use lead with a natural kind of like bio coating to, you know, transport our water throughout our cities and the corrosion started leaching into the pipes. First, it was TTHMs, which is, like I said, a carcinogenic. It combines, it's when chlorine kind of combines with organic biomatter. So we first saw that people were complaining about the smell of their water. And that was from, I guess, their original 
combination of biomatter to the chlorine. And then also, you know, in the early summer, they had E. coli boil notices and all these different things. Well, eventually it led to the corrosion of these lead pipes. And so as you know, anyone knows when something is corroded and you put water in it, you're going to leach whatever is in that container. Um, these containers in this case are, are the lead pipes. Mm. So it started leaching lead and That's bad. <laughs> <they>, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. is how, that is literally how the fall of Rome, like one of the reasons why the fall of Rome occurred is because the population became lead poison. Yeah. So yeah. So the entire population, some areas were worse than others because some, some people had lead pipes, some people didn't, but then there's also the issue of like, some people have copper pipes, like, okay, then you're leaching copper into your body. Like, what is that going to do? So yeah, so it's basically the, all uh, the pipes leach from this corrosive water and now they basically have to fix them all. Just replace (laughs) the whole system? Basically, they're going to have to replace the whole system. That is the only way that you're going to ever be able to get clean, trustable water out of those pipes again. So this is more so a story about infrastructure, which I think can echo nationally, because nationally, uh, the United States is getting very old. Our highway systems, our road systems, Michigan is known for its roads because they look like Swiss cheese. <laughs> like they're horrible, at least in the poor like areas, they're horrible. If you go out to the suburbs, all of a sudden they're like real nice. So, you know, it's, it's an infrastructure issue. And the reason why it became such a big deal is because those in authority were lying the entire time about whether or not it was drinkable and you know thankfully we had really awesome mothers and and women who had great intuition because that's really who kind of like led this movement was really concerned moms Mm -hmm. who were picking up like this isn't right like there's something off about this wow there's a book real quick i was gonna say have you read the big thirst Mm -mm. by it's 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 a book called the big thirst by charles fishman um probably wrote it seven years ago but you might just water issues and infrastructure yeah it, it really covers it from a global perspective he goes to vegas and like australia and talks about really our water system yeah he also talks about how it's used in technology and like how water is filtered and yeah just a ton of things and what is going to happen with in 50 years what kind of the water issues that are going to come up i think you might find it pretty fascinating yeah no that'd be awesome i you know it's kind of weird because i remember um I think I read, I think it's Silent Spring or something like that. I read some type of book when I was in high school about like a population that, you know, their water system became like poisoned by all the pesticides and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's like all of this like came full circle, you know. Um, And it's kind of interesting is I just found out recently I went home to see my mom and she trusts me, thankfully, uh, with a lot of like this water recognizing water issues and, you know, understanding when to kind of like set your boundary and decide to like take your own health into concern. And we found out that Davis County, Kentucky, where I'm from, has one of the highest levels of this carcinogenic compound that can cause stomach cancer over time. And it's water system. It occurs from farm runoff. Oh, wow. And my mom and I have been living there for some time. And so I I read that report and I just was like, well, um, yeah, I, I don't drink it. <laughs> so yeah, this is something that I've even seen now, like touch my own personal life. Like water issues are today and are going to continue to be one of the most discussed, problematic and inequitable issues of our time, I think, especially considering the corporatization of water resources. And like Nestle was trying to get a contract with Michigan for access to the lakes, which is so ironic because like, okay, so you're in a bottle the clean fresh water from Michigan and then basically give it back to the people of Flint who have to buy it. It has to be paid for. It's like, 
we're surrounded by the Great Lakes and we, we can't have fresh water and clean water. Wow. Yeah. So I'm really scared of the corporatization of that. And it's a big issue. Yeah. yeah such a basic human right. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can't live without it. And so I'm really nervous that the U.S. is going to unfortunately take the role of many other countries we've seen uh, struggle with clean water. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, the reason I'm kind of interested, really interested in this topic, I have some photography questions I'll get to in a second, but we, uh, at Musea, my company, we've been donating to water.org for a long time since we really started the company. And obviously they, so they support a lot of stuff like outside the U S but that's probably reason I read that book and I've watched some documentaries on it, but it just the global water crisis in general is pretty crazy. Then a lot of people don't realize how bad it is and how many people just have to walk so far or they just have to drink water that's not clean yeah people die from diseases because they don't have clean water and people died in flint because of a bacterial illness that was transmitted right yeah it's more more people die from that than like terrorism or war or anything like it's yeah it's a huge huge issue that just people don't talk about yeah and yeah you know like if you proclaim like issues about clean water you know you're kind of a hippie it sounds like but really i feel like it's such a basic thing like why wouldn't you want clean water for everybody yeah it's been kind of interesting you know and i I, and i've I've kind of been dealing with like my journalistic bias with that you know i don't want to become too much of an activist for flint but like documenting it so closely it's so hard not to become concerned and irritated and speak out against this because at the end of the day like when i take off my journalism role i'm a person at home who you know have three pets and a boyfriend who i care about deeply and i would never want them to go through this i don't want the people i documented to have to continue to go through this so you know, I've been tracing that fine line and I don't want to come off as though that I am void of truth and that I don't care about what officials are actually uh, saying. It's not that, but it's just that I saw people in authority fail the people of Flint before. So now I have to be skeptical. It is my job to be skeptical. Yeah, totally agree. Okay, let's, I'm going to get into some photography stuff a little bit, but that was amazing and important conversation, I believe. So looking at your work, you've kind of touched on this earlier, but you really seem to be attracted to people that are facing a lot of challenges in their lives. It's kind of a recurring theme in some of your work. This is your recent work, obviously, is like different, but some of the bigger projects, I guess, I've seen that you have on your site. So for me, like, where does that come from? Like, why are you attracted to those type of stories? So to be like very bluntly honest, I was raised by a single mom. Um, my dad passed away from alcoholism when I was about eight. Uh, last time I saw him, I was four, though. So, you know, I, I never got to, like, kind of establish that close relationship that would have made that loss as devastating as it, as it was, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I watched, you know, my mother deal with her own issues growing up, and she was someone who I view as very resilient and strong because I read this somewhere that was really interesting because it speaks so much to my mom. Women's strength is so often measured by how much abuse they can take. Mm rather than their actual like mental and you know physical strength like and sort of like how men are portrayed and how masculinity is portrayed with women it's like how much bullshit can you take yeah and that was kind of like what my mom was like you know i watched her i watched so many i remember watching like you know some instances where i felt like i wanted to do more but i was so young you know it just kind of came from that intrinsic need to in a sort of way be parental and take care of her and then also at sometimes you know I watch societal issues kind of push her down in in ways that just made me a really concerned adult that I I had like this 
need and this like all like overreaching feeling of kind of needing to stand up for the people that were being bullied. You know, I was like bullied in high school and I never really like let it get me down in a sense of like, let it take away my worth. My, you know, my attitude in high school was like, well, screw all you guys. Like I'm going to go do something, (laughs) you know, but it sucked, you know, and I saw other people get like bullied. And so I guess that like, that like really like kind of almost like basic teenager thing is what like led to me being, you know, 18, 19 years old and feeling this connection with, um, with photography, uh, that documented historical events where people were essentially being bullied, where they were being, my major was in sociology. I started off with a photo program, but I eventually finished my sociology degree. And so also looking at the sociological references behind things and understanding how social norms and powers and applying like fundamentalist and sometimes even Marxist theories to the things we're seeing before us, that started at a really young age for me. And that's why when I did decide to major in sociology in college, it was like something clicked because that's the way that I like had always thought. I had always been someone who was questioning and skeptical and also just like really curious about what makes people tick because, you know, I always wanted to understand the motivations behind why someone did something. And I always also wanted to, you know, like if someone made me mad, yeah, sure. Like they maybe committed an action that was not likable. I wanted to understand maybe why they did that and not like automatically view them as the bad guy either. So that kind of, yeah, it all kind of stemmed from that like thinking process. And I wish I could explain it better in words, like the way that my brain works in that sense, um, because it's, I was also like diagnosed with ADHD as a kid. And I actually just got, and I, I talk about it openly because I think it's important. I just like recently in the past months got diagnosed with major depressive disorder and it does play into how my brain works um, and why I'm drawn to the subjects that I'm drawn to is because I, I feel a, a great connection with them. And honestly, in like a sort of selfish way, like I think I get a lot out of it meeting other people who have been through so many things. You know, a lot of them actually give me a lot of great inspiration in my own life. You know, there's so many people I've met who are going through a lot, but they're, they're a lot stronger than I would be in their situation. Mm. So, yeah, I think that gravitational pull just comes from a, a similarity and, and recognizing things and these people that I'm documenting that I've seen growing up or I see in myself or I you know, I recognize the greater social powers that, you know, I sound like a hippie, but like the greater social powers that are kind of controlling their lives. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, failure in certain systems that are are kind of like hurting their lives. So I think that that's something I've always had a great passion for and photography was just kind of an outlet for that. It's fantastic. How do you gain trust with the people you photograph? I mean, it seems like you're being in their personal space a lot. Yeah. So how do you go about that? Everybody does it a little different. So I'm just curious your methodology. Yeah, I think I'm just like, I honestly actually let down my guard a lot when I'm with the people I'm photographing more so than I do like even the reporters that I'm working with. And maybe that's something that reporters can speak to when they're working with me is like, I kind of actually turn off my professionalism in a sense of like, I don't, I, I turn off the, the part of me that feels the need to just be quiet and observant when I first meet someone, I, I put back on that kind of like role of being quiet and observant when I'm actually photographing them once I have gained their trust. But I just try to like be real. Like I try to like talk to someone like I just bumped into them on the street and I, I try to let go of the power dynamic that I don't really believe anymore that the photographer has all this power and that they're really our subjects. Uh, That's a belief that I kind of let go after Flint. Um, I'm now recognizing it that it's really 
the people that we're photographing who have the dynamic of control because they're the ones allowing us into their lives. We're just there to, to photograph it truthfully. You know, they're the ones who we kind of owe. They don't really like owe us. Um, and so once you kind of like let your guard down and kind of open yourself up and let go of that need to be, you know, this movie picture-esque version of what a journalist is and yeah. just kind of let your true self show through. It's hard to like explain, but I think you get what I mean. Like mm-hmm. I picture like someone in a suit, like I don't want to be the person in the suit. I want to like be someone that they can relate to and talk to. So like, you know, I'm, I'm looking at my website now because I'm trying to like kind of draw inspiration from like memories I remember. And I just remember like this one photo where I have these kids and this really great family in Flint, like praying. I'm shooting her wedding in a week oh, wow. <laughs> for her. Like, that's awesome. You know, I was able to develop a connection. And that day that I took these photos, like I don't spend really a lot of time shooting. I spend more time connecting because it's it's like I just get to the point. It's like, what's the point of taking a thousand frames of someone closed off to you when you can make 25 frames of someone being open and intimate and really letting you in? And so when I arrived at people's houses, like these kids, I played with them and we whipped and nanade, <laughs> like where they were whipping and naning. I can't. They were showing me how to whip and nanade. They still have the videos. Oh, it's so cute. They were showing me how to do this dance move for like half an hour. And we were just like hanging out and playing. And like I took, a, you know, I took photos when I was there. But yeah, I think just like letting your own guard down. I think that we have to like almost go through our own therapy over time. And I think that oftentimes I'm actually way more vulnerable and open with my subjects than I am people in my own life. The person that you meet at a photo conference is drastically different than the person who is photographing. Mm. I think I have my guard up more in a photo conference setting where I'm amongst other professionals than I do with my subjects. I've told subjects things that are personal in my life that I don't know I would tell someone I'm meeting at a photo conference because they're exchanging a vulnerable intimacy with me. I have to show them that I can do the same. Otherwise, it's inequitable, and I want us to be equals. I want it to be a collaboration between us two to tell their story. You know, I want to take instruction from them, not full control instruction, but I want to, you know, Farron, this guy I did a story on, my very first story, I'm still documenting him. He always gives me shit because he's like, <laughs> he's literally like, like the, one of the last things he said to me was like, if you want to tell my story, then you need to come out here for about two to three months to really see it all because you're not seeing it all right now. Like he straight called me out, <laughs> like not doing a good job. And I love that. Yeah. I love that dynamic. Like he is in control here. He is, you know, making me understand what his story is. And yeah, I can apply like what I see and like I can still remain independent and skeptical and a true journalist while still developing that bond and relationship with my subjects. Because at the end of the day, there's really, I just don't feel like there's really such a thing as remaining holistically independent because all of us are a collection of our experiences. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Brittany Greeson. She's a fantastic up-and-coming storyteller. We look for her as she grows in her career and continues to branch off into new media. So thank you so much to her. If you want to hear more from Brittany, you can hear more from her at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash musea. We have about a 10-minute additional audio clip over there. She talks about one of her favorite photos ever and why that is. She also gives career advice for photographers that are wanting to get into photojournalism and some things you can do to start your career as a photojournalist and maybe 
some pitfalls to avoid. So again, just uh, thank you so much for our Patreon supporters that are over there. If you want to become a Patreon supporter, just patreon.com slash musea. Special thanks to James Sweeting for the editing and production of this podcast. And we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you.